I heard something else mm-hmm. about maybe having a cup of coffee with the Patriots. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was a little more than a cup of coffee. I was there for six months. <laughs> so when that ends, yeah, right, how much of your identity was being a football player and what was that like to then lose that and transition into the business world? All of it. Yeah. A hundred percent of my identity was as a football player. Yeah. And it was a mistake. Yeah. A enormous mistake. You are listening to Advise with Rick Lucini. Excited for today. We have a Central PA local legend. Emphasis on local. Local legend. That's okay. A humble <laughs> local legend. Um, former Penn State NFL linebacker turned CEO, yeah. Josh Hall. Josh, thanks for coming. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Why don't you give us uh, your three-minute background, and then we'll get right into it. Yeah. Um, I'm just a regular, average Joe kid growing up. I love to, to hunt and fish uh, and get into the, the normal trouble and mischief that any other uh, young boy would get into growing up in rural Pennsylvania. I went to Penns Valley High School. I uh, played baseball and football there and had an opportunity to walk on at Penn State to play football. Um, <clears throat> earned a starting inside linebacker position in my junior year. I earned a scholarship uh, and ultimately ended up leading the team in tackles my senior year. Got invited to the NFL Combine in Indianapolis and got drafted in the second to last pick in the seventh round uh, by the St. Louis Rams, which is an amazing experience. That's awesome. Uh, played three years in St. Louis a year with D.C., with the Redskins, and then I got cut my fifth year, never made the active roster uh, with uh, the New England Patriots and the Jacksonville Jaguars. The Patriots stung a little bit. <laughs> that year they won the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't have, as you can see, my hands. There's no Super Bowl rings on my fingers, but uh, <laughs> I got a, a taste of, of what it takes and was exposed to the caliber of people that it takes to win Super Bowls, which is uh, that's really a- awesome. Blessed for it. That's awesome. Yeah. Um. I want to go into a couple things that I heard there. Okay. One is <clears throat> why did you decide to walk on to Penn State when I would have to assume you were getting scholarship offers for local D2 schools and things like that? Yeah. Um, I had two other legitimate opportunities to play football. One at William & Mary. Loved the university. Loved the campus. And then two at Bucknell University. Same. I can say the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the decision to walk on at Penn State, one, had to do with the fact it's right up the street from where I grew up. I grew up in Milheim. Um, I can remember going to Penn State games as a boy with my dad. Yeah. I can vividly remember sitting in Beaver Stadium and the pouring down rain and it raining so hard that the water was cascading down the steps and it's like a river in our feet and just how special it felt to be in a place with 110,000 people. Right. Uh, the biggest thing I not believe I know uh, is my personality. I had a pretty strong sense that I could go into William and Mary or Bucknell and be a contributor right out of the gate. Um, and if I would have done that, I think I would have always looked back and say, you know what, I had an opportunity to maybe prove myself at Penn State. And I never really, if I would have went to one of those uh, smaller schools, I just really didn't, would not have forced myself to get out on the comfort level of competing with the best of the best. So the biggest reason uh, going to Penn State is I wanted to challenge myself. Yeah, um, I knew it wasn't a walk in the park. I knew that I had an uphill <laughs> battle every single day. It was a walk-on, yeah. uh, competing against five-star athletes from 
all over the United States. Um, but if I put myself in that environment, I knew that ultimately, because I was competing with people that were smart, smarter, faster, and stronger than me, I ultimately would be a faster, smarter, stronger guy. Yeah. So, I think that proves why you ended up being successful. Yeah. You know, because you were driven from day one to be able to do something like that. Yeah, I think a lot of it, too, has to do with the fact that the way that I was raised, my parents never put boundaries on my brother and I's success. Yeah. Um, they never said, oh, you can only do this or you'll never be successful doing this. It was, okay, boys, what do you guys want to accomplish in your life? Right. And how can your dad and I help you? What tools can we give you? What can we teach you to help you accomplish the goals that you guys set forth? So yeah, um, that's a big, my wife and I are really, really big in that with raising our own kids right now. Uh, not to try to define their success and what they can and can't accomplish at such a young age. Because unfortunately there's a lot of kids that are told from day one, you'll never be able to do this. You're not smart enough to do this. Right. And that's not, thankfully I wasn't raised that way. And, and sometimes that can, that can come from a good place because they're trying to protect them or they're trying to steer them in the right sure. direction. But you don't know what people are able to do until yeah. they get out there and do it. Humans are capable of some miraculous things. That's right. All humans period. So I heard something else mm -hmm. about maybe having a cup of coffee with the Patriots. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was a little more than a cup of coffee. I was there for six months. <laughs> Proverbial so cup of coffee. Cups you know coffee. what I mean. Okay. So when that ends. Yeah. Right. How much of your identity was being a football player? And what was that like to then lose that and transition into the business world? All of it. Yeah. A hundred percent of my identity was as a football player. Yeah. And it was a mistake. Yeah. A enormous mistake. Um, I would I, assume that, by the way, is why I brought it up, because um, I can relate to that. I know a yeah. lot of people that can relate to that. Uh, whether it's sports, whether it's your job, mm -hmm. the business that you own or the title that you have. Right. Um, and yeah, why don't you just speak to that a little bit and and maybe how we can do better as parents yeah. to separate, you know, your your athleticism or your job or whatever it is from your identity, because it, it can really leave you vulnerable. It was hard. Um played football from the time I was 12 years old. It was my life, literally my life. Everything that I did evolved around football, especially as a professional. It took me a long time to understand that football wasn't who I was. It was just what I did. Um, it's a poor analogy, but it's the only one that I know that can really resonate. It was a true grieving process. It, was, it felt like I lost somebody in my life not having football. Uh, for 12 straight years, I woke up every single day and I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew where I had to be. I knew what my workout routine was going to be. I knew what I had to eat. I knew what I had to study. I knew how I knew what I had to do to be successful in the field. And you wake up in the morning and it's gone. And how people viewed you. And how people viewed you, right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it was it was a, probably the hardest year of my life after not playing in the NFL. Um, what was I supposed to do? How was I supposed to do it? What skills... Did I accomplish, 
acquire, hone over my professional athletic career that I could apply into life after football. Um, didn't know what they were at the time while you were playing football, but right. after you kind of cleanse yourself and put a different lens in front of you, you realize, man, maybe all of the skills that I've learned as a professional athlete can be applied in life afterwards. So. Absolutely. And I think that it's difficult, but for people like you, myself, a lot of folks that I know, um, we can do better at trying to teach our kids. Yes, you're supporting their athletic career or that science project or whatever the thing is, but do things so that they know that's not who they are. Right. They're not getting love because they're great at baseball. Yep. Right. That's mm -hmm. just another thing that they do. And the same can be said with business. I mean, don't be scared to do something else that you have a passion for just because you're known as the tax guy. Right. <clears throat> you can be the tax guy and the garden guy. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. You know, don't be scared about that. Um, and I think that having your identity wrapped up in something like that, like you said, it, it can leave you very vulnerable. Yeah. But coming out on the other side and realizing that all those things that you learned along the way makes you a great business person. Yep. What does that look like? Right. How does that translate to business? And what are some of the things that you look back and say, man, I only can do this now because I played football. Let me, you, you said a couple of things that made me think of some, so we'll, we'll get to how do my skills as an athlete translate to business. We'll, we'll absolutely talk about that. Um, this is a shame on me for not mentioning this earlier. <clears throat> I gave my life to Christ when I was in DC with the Redskins. Um, that fact alone, <clears throat> excuse me, helped tremendously through this transition of life after football, because prior to that identified as a football player, you take football away. Who is Josh post Christ identify myself as a Christian football's taken away. Guess what? Christ is still there. My belief is still there. My faith is still there. It never wavers. It never goes away. It doesn't change. It's everlasting. It's omnipotent. It's always there. So that was a big part of my transition post football is placing my value in the Lord rather than into something that I do as a person. Right. Um, it's always going to be there. Uh, football. Sorry if there's any young listeners out there, any other sport, baseball, basketball, you name it. It's not always going to be there. There's going to be a day that you can't play it anymore. Right. Um, yeah. Awesome. So you asked me the question, what skills did I learn as an athlete and how do you apply those to business afterwards? Yeah. There's, we could sit here all day really and talk about that. Yeah. Um, I'll do my best. To at a high level. Down. Yeah. At a high level. Um, the first thing is just performance. My entire career was based on performance. If you don't perform, I don't have a use, literally don't have a use for you on the football team. Right. Um, man, this is, this, this is not the place to talk about this, but if you take that approach into your job, if I'm not providing a tangible product, it's absolutely the place to talk day, about it, by the way. Yes. If I'm not providing something tangible every single day, what am I doing? So just holding myself to a high standard, know that, knowing that I'm going to be evaluated every single day and knowing that my work product is my signature, I think that separates yourself from, from a lot of other people that are just kind of coming to work on a nine to five, punching Absolutely. the clock and moving out. Absolutely. Um, leadership. 
the ability to work with a team. Uh, football obviously is not an individual sport. Every single day I'm blessed to work now as a CEO of Penn Production Group, blessed to work with some of the most intelligent, thoughtful people in the industry and being able to take talents from all over the place and put them together in a functioning team. I mean, I, I use um, collaboration and teamwork, things that I've had to do everything, every single day in the NFL, just inadvertently, I apply that every single day at work. Um, a couple other things, being able to, we talked about performance, but in, in high stress situations, right? I performed in some of the most <laughs> yeah. high stress environments that you can yeah. succumb or put yourself to. So there's really multiple times in any given week, you get in these business situations like, all right, no emotion. Yeah. Just calm down. Been battle tested. Been battle tested. Proven. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think when you are in those big situations in sports and then in business and you come out on the other side, you start to learn that whatever the outcome, even if it wasn't favorable to you, Mm -hmm. it's not the end of the world. And there will be another one. Right. And so you can be a little bit more level-headed going into the next one. Say, right. I already did that, especially when you did it and failed. That can a lot of times be even better. Right. I did it, <laughs> failed, I'm still standing here, yep. and I'm up at bat again. Mm-hmm. And I think athletes recognize all the things that you just said. I think it's important for the business owners to be listening to this, thinking about especially small companies maybe only have a handful, 10 employees, look at former college athletes. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be Division I All-Americans. They don't have to have gone to the NFL. They could be third string D3, right? but they did it, and they stuck with it, and they worked towards something that was bigger than themselves. Sure. And they've proven that they can have drive for something. Mm-hmm. And I think former athletes make great employees for all the reasons you just said, Yeah, knowing that they have to come to work and perform. Right. How about that? I mean, th- I, right. <laughs> what a novel concept, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's true. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's a lot of former athletes out there that, need to bring that sort of stuff up. I think that they, college is over, you know, maybe it's a, a footnote on my resume, but they don't talk about it. I think that conversation that you just had right there needs to be in the interview room, hmm. right? These are the skills that I learned playing tennis at St. Francis or whatever you were doing. Right. And the interviewer or the business owner might connect those dots a little bit better. No doubt. One of the other skill sets I like to mention too is just, um, this is an innate thing that I've always had, an innate personality trait that I've had my entire life is just not ever accepting the word no. Right. That's an answer. Um, Hate to lose and it's kind of not wanting to lose and the answer no are kind of connected in my mind here. And the reason I bring that up, I mean, you're never going to play at Penn State, okay? Check the box, I did that. You're right. a walk-on. You're not going to start. Check the box, did that. You're not going to play in the NFL. Check the box, I did that. Um, just any challenge that I faced throughout my athletic career, regardless of what people were telling me or regardless of who I was competing against, I found a way to be successful. I never accepted no. And it would trust me, it was challenge after challenge after challenge after roadblock after roadblock 
And it's the old adage, you get knocked down five times, but you stand up six. Um, it's applicable every single day to the business world. Yes. Um, every no that you receive just means that you're one step closer to getting a yes. Yeah. So <clears throat> the yeah. tenacity, the tenacity, the dedication, the commitment, it all transpired. It all cascades into business and life after football. So um, you mentioned Penn Production. You're the CEO there. Yeah. That is a central PA company. Mm-hmm. What brings you back to Central PA, uh, raise a family here and work here when, you know, your NFL career moved you around, you could have landed anywhere. Yeah. You said it. It's, it's family. Yeah. Um, we live in Spring Mills, Pennsylvania. My wife's family is just north of us in Belfont. My family is in Penns Valley where we're at. Um, had an opportunity to live in a bunch of really cool places all over the United States and traveled, traveled all over the place playing. And uh, the roots of the family are, are are deeper and stronger than anything that, that I experienced in traveling. So it was a great place to raise kids. Um, both of our families, both of my parents and my wife's parents are still actively involved in raising our kids. So having the support system around the Absolutely. family, is, it's, it's invaluable, priceless. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Everybody's here and that's, that's really, really where we wanted to settle that's awesome. down. Mm-hmm. So I have two, two things that I really, I personally really want to know. Sure. One, <laughs> what is it like to come out of the tunnel at Beaver yeah. Stadium with 110? One of you know you played in a lot of big games, right? Um, what's that like? Two distinct, separate feelings that I experienced <laughs> going through there. The first, maybe the people here that are listening aren't gonna don't understand this. As as a walk on your first year, you're not you don't have the ability to play, so you do every single thing that. All the other players do just on Saturdays, you know, you're not dressing up. Penn State had a thing that if every week in practice they would honor one walk on one practice squad guy as based on how they performed in practice during the week, you got to dress, go through and warm up with your position group, or wore the full uniform, but just stood on the sidelines, you didn't play. Right. So the first time I got to do that, it's, <laughs> man, you walk into Beaver Stadium, you're in the tunnel, and it's eyes wide open, taking everything in. You're hearing the people yelling at you from the other team. You're feeling their drinks coming down from throwing. You feel the vibrations. You smell the grass. You smell everything. And we just, why? Just really like, I got goosebumps talking about this. Just taking it all in. That's experience number one and feeling number one. Feeling number two is when I'm standing in the tunnel knowing that I'm the starting inside linebacker for the Penn State Nittany Lions. It's different. A walk on from Penn's Valley. It is, I really got goosebumps right now. Like, that feeling will never ever leave me but it was surreal it was not what i mentioned before it was so tunnel vision i was so focused on what the task in front of me was that you don't hear the 110,000 people you don't feel it it's just i've spent the last six days of the week preparing for this i know what i need to do yep and turn the lights on and let's execute let's perform and execute yeah yeah that's awesome Mm -hmm. the other one is something that is going on the news right now. Mm-hmm. Most recently, um, the newest proposal for the NCAA to start paying players, but I think the NIL rule, what are your thoughts on that as somebody that played at the highest level when those things were not available, mm-hmm. um, did get drafted the NFL, but played with a lot of guys that did not. Right. You know, what, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. You experienced it uh, on one side, and now 
it's completely different. Yeah, I love it. I think these players should be able to make a billion dollars a year if somebody's willing to pay them. Yeah. Um, I don't think I would have felt that way if I didn't play in the NFL. Uh, the NFL is a what-can-you-do-for-me-today business. It's a meat shop. Um, there's no friends in the NFL. Yep. They're colleagues only. And if you don't perform, once again, you're out. Um, it's hard on your body. It takes a lot of time out of your life. There's a lot of uh, sacrifices that you have to give, um, not only physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, all of it. Um, if you have an opportunity to monetize your skill set at the age of 18, by all means, I think they should be able to do it. I am not upset. I'm not jealous. I don't have any animosity, animosity at all towards the players in college that are, have the ability to make money. Do I wish I could have made sure. money in college? Yeah. 100% I do. But it's progress. It's progress. Yeah. And no, I 100% agree with you. I actually have some stuff mm -hmm. out there of me saying that. And I think that it is the NIL especially. Mm -hmm. um, the, the revenue share and all that, I personally believe in. But if that doesn't develop into something as big as it, honestly should yeah. at least the nil mm -hmm. is to me that's a basic human right being able to to make money off of your name image and yeah. likeness right i mean it's, it's a no-brainer and um it's a check mark for free market capitalism which i believe in and big Amen. surprise because mm -hmm. <laughs> excuse me here we are talking about performance and I mean, that's what capitalism is. Right. Right. So I 100% agree with you. And I love that it's finally moving in the right direction and not just getting shut down completely. And for a little context, because I get a lot of, you know, I don't want to say nasty, but disagreeing comments. <laughs> and, and I welcome that. I want the discussion. Sure. I think that's what breeds the um, progress is the discussion and, and people here on both sides. But. For a little context, um, the average head coach, the average salary for a head coach in the Power Five Conference is six point two five million, okay. with the ones at the top making double that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so your head coach at Michigan is making twelve million dollars, and so for the folks that answer. But they get a scholarship, right? Mm -hmm. um, Ohio State generated over $250 million of revenue. Their football team, not their right. college, right. Mm -hmm. just their football program. Um, you can't tell me that the scholarship is enough anymore. And you know we can put a cap on that, but why don't you just add to that and let people know that, that really don't know what it's like to be, especially at that high of a level, a college athlete, and the time commitment and how it's different than just being a regular student at Penn State. Yeah, I'll talk about the time commitment for sure. So one question for you, I guess, the people out here listening. Can you name any other for-profit business? And by, these college sports, it's a for-profit business. Irregardless of what you want to say, it's a yeah. for-profit business. Can you name any other for-profit business in the United States or the world, for that matter, that does not pay their workers that produces the product that they sell. No, you can't. No. And when I say that, because I agree a hundred percent, when I say that, um, I get back things like, well, they're not employees, they're students. Okay. 
have them not play football That's, and tell me what the business <laughs> produces next year. You took the words out of my right? mouth. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, they can't all make, you know, what the head coach makes this and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, at my business, the, I don't know, the intern getting coffee doesn't, okay, trust me, this is not a parallel. These are key employees. Right. So a lot of things were saying, well, they shouldn't get revenue share because, you know, Microsoft makes X amount of billions of dollars, but everybody that works there don't get, don't get a revenue share in that. And my response to that is the key employees do. Right. So if you don't think that the quarterback and the wide receiver and the middle linebacker for Alabama are, are key employees or essential to that business, right. you're out of your mind. And they do get it because they, the, the front office – and the key employees at a Microsoft or a Google or whatever are getting profit sharing and they're getting stock options and everything else. So I 100% agree with you. Um, and I'm glad that it's moving in the right direction. The NIL is just a no-brainer. And and I think the profit share is next. Um, but I 100% agree with you. I mean, there's, there is no business, you know. And so we, we can cap it there because – but um, I'm glad that that you were candid about your thoughts on that. Yeah. You asked me about uh, what's the day in the life of a yes. college athlete look like. What's the time commitment there? That's what I wanted to I'll say. I'll run that. through just a, a generic cookie-cutter day. Um, I'm a morning person. My best work's done first thing after I wake up from good night's sleep. So I always uh, worked out the earliest time slot that I could each day. Um, I can't remember what time. We'll say it's six, maybe 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning. So start your day with a workout about an hour, an hour and a half. Um, after that, we had to report to breakfast. Every single player had to be checked in. And if you missed a breakfast, there was consequences to pay. So you go to breakfast. And from then, my classes started at 8 o'clock. We had every athlete had the time frame between 8 o'clock in the day to 2.15 in the afternoon to get your academics done. At 2.15, we had to be back at the football building every day of the week. 2.15, we started with, if there was any stretching or anything you needed to do before practice, you go ahead and take care of that. Um, we had team meetings. We'd start with the, with the entire team with Coach Paterno. Then you'd break down into offensive-defensive meetings. And then you'd break down offense-defense into position group. Um, go through all of the meetings, watch film, install the, the plan for that week. Then you'd go out, go to practice, <clears throat> come back. Watch film again. Watch what you just did at practice. Get coached, get learned, get critiqued. Uh, from there, everybody showers. Take care of yourself again after practice. Stretch, ice, massage, any of that stuff in the training room. Back to the training table to eat dinner. And then from dinner, we came right back to the football building. And as a freshman, you have to have, I think it was two or three hours of study hall a night, mandatory, uh, until you could hit that 2.0 grade point average and then they could spread, you were allowed to spread your wings and go fly. Um, I got into the routine. I studied engineering at Penn State. Um, I just got into the routine of having to do that as a freshman. I went back to the building every single night throughout my entire career because there's cubicles there. It's quiet. It's focused. Um, there's tutors there. So I stayed in study hall um, by choice throughout my five years at Penn State. So your day, my day would start at 5, 5.30 in the morning, and it was most nights 9.30, 10, 10.30 at night till you were back in your dorm room um, to chill out for a half hour, 45 minutes, go to sleep, and 
get up and do it all do over it all again. over again yeah I'm, I'm glad you ran through that because um the argument is like they're they're athletes they're you know student athletes they get a that is a job it's a job and you mm-hmm. want to do it yeah by choice. right you mm-hmm. want to do it right but when that job also generates 200 plus million dollars you ought get compensated for it. So we'll put a cap on that. I'm glad we went there. But you talked about engineering. Yeah. And that's where you're at now. So why don't you tell us what you're doing with that and, and what you're yeah. up to now? So that's a funny story. So I have my undergraduate degree is in environmental systems engineering. I am not an engineer by, pra- by practice, not an engineering by trade. Um, this thing called the NFL got in the way of me taking all my engineering exams post-graduation. Mm-hmm. So I have a degree that says I'm an engineer, right. but I never practiced it. Um, I also, at the age of 18, thought that that was the quickest way to riches. Uh, <laughs> I thought I was going to make a pile of money being an engineer. And it's okay. a pretty big fallacy there as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, the thing that I learned later in life, which most of hopefully everybody else has learned, there's a lot more value in doing something that you love and care about and you're genuine about than than going to work and trying to capture as most the much the most amount of money 100 at any time that you can yeah and and let me just stop you right there and drill down because i'm like a big believer in that yeah um at any age right like if you don't realize that until you're 39 i'm raising my hand for yeah. those that are only listening to the podcast and not watching it do it right if you don't realize that until you're 56 and your kids graduated and now you've got a little extra do the it's thing never too late do the yeah. thing mm-hmm. and the money will come by the way right because you're actually passionate about it and you actually want to do it and on the retirement planning side because that's what i do for a living just so you know less money for a longer period of time works in a retirement plan too mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're not scratching your eyes out trying to time trying to retire at 62 right. because you're miserable you're waking up you're going to do this whether somebody pays you or not. Now, all of a sudden, yeah. you have revenue into your later years. So yeah. I'm glad you said that. Follow your passion. Yeah. Um, encourage the people around you to do it. Right. And it can turn into something. I was not passionate at all about being an engineer. Um, thankfully, after the NFL, I was given an, a huge opportunity at a local family office in State College to come work for work for their firm. Um, I worked directly with the president and CEO when I first started there, and he identified, I assume, some personal characteristics in me that were very similar to what Coach Paterno identified in. Uh, gave me an opportunity to go back to school again. I went back to Penn State and got my master's in business, and that's really where the light switch flipped for me, um, finding my new found passion after football was no longer there. Uh, the world of business is amazing. I get a very, very similar sense of adrenaline, the rush. Competition. Um, the, competition. the competition's there, and that's why yeah. I think a lot of athletes uh, become good employees or owners right. in the business world mm-hmm. because the competition that we are searching for in our everyday lives yeah. is there. Right. It fills a void that's missing. Yeah. Um, there's so much to in business. It is hard. Sports is hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, to me, things are only worth, they only have value if I struggled for them. If something comes easy, like I don't find any value in accomplishing easy things. Yeah. So the challenges that I face every single day, the adversity, 
the complexity of taking information all over the place and trying to put it together to make a, a single point of sense for strat, for strategic reasons. It's just, it's mesmerizing. I, I'm super, super passionate about doing what I'm doing now. That's awesome. And, yeah. and what is it that you guys do there for the folks that yeah. don't know? Penn Production Group is an exploration and production company uh, based in Clearfield County, Pennsylvania. We drill Marcellus and Utica wells. So we are extracting clean, safe, reliable energy uh, from beneath our feet every single day. And it's playing a huge part in our energy independence and energy security uh, moving forward here in the United right. States. How does that play a role moving forward with the push for EVs because we're becoming more, hopefully more energy independence and we can independent and we can lean more on things like gas, yeah. natural gas mm -hmm. rather than, than oil. Yeah. I see a place for all types of energy in today's mix. Um, as you mentioned, there's a huge push now to green energy and solar and wind um, etc. The way that I view natural gas fitting into this mix is it's, it's the transition fuel. Um, it's transitioning away from the heavier polluters burning coal to the cleaner polluters of wind and solar. It's the right. transition that's going to get us from coal to eventually um, renewables in the future. Right. It's bridging the gap. Yep. And there are some advantages to investing in this type of energy is there not yeah absolutely so it's really i look at it in two different facets one it's an opportunity to generate reliable monthly distributions from investing in wells and two the internal revenue code has some really intriguing tax provisions that incentivizes private equity investment into the united states role of producing energy uh, on the intangible drilling cost they're eligible to be written off 100% in year one. Uh, anything intangible is stuff that you can't touch. So uh, money that's spent on fuel, money that's spent on consulting, money that's spent on geological work, um, all that investment money up front is written. How, how does that break down for the investor? Somebody that's listening right now, mm -hmm. interested in in investing in you know, gas and oil, Marcellus shale, shale drilling. Yeah. Uh, how does that look for, uh, you know, using round numbers? What does that look like on a tax break on average for, say, a $100,000 investment? Yeah, so the first thing we need to go through is historically, if you take 100% of the cost to drill a well, 80% of it is typically intangible. 20% is typically tangible cost. Got it. Um, so if you look, if you make a $100,000 investment, 80% of that is allocated to intangible drilling costs. So you're going to get an $80,000 above line deduction off your effective gross income uh, year one. In year one. Yeah. If you yeah. assume 30% federal tax bracket, um, I'm sorry, 37% and 3.07 um, at the state level, you're going to generate roughly 40% on 80. So what, $32,000. Yeah. And I just want to, I just want to double click on that for a second in case, in case anybody missed that. What you're talking about is on average is an $100,000 investment. Mm -hmm. I'm getting an $80,000 top line deduction right. in year one. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the longevity of the investment, the dividend rate, all that stuff, which we're not going to go into because there's too many variables there. Sure. 
just that alone on a planning perspective, now we can think about things like I sold a commercial building right before I retired and I have this massive taxable event in one year. Um, I wanted to do a really huge Roth conversion and I create this big taxable event although not the only reason to do it, and this isn't um, advice, but it's a way to offset a really big tax bill in one given year Mm -hmm. and then still have an actual legitimate investment on the back end that's going to pay us dividends and last for a long time. Yeah, and the way that uh, this investment vehicle typically works in the industry, you can choose the type of partner you become in these limited partnerships. So if you become a general partner, you can use the investment to offset active income. Limited partner, you can use it can only be used to offset passive income. Um, not an accountant, and that varies yep. between every personal, every every individual that's listening here is going to have a different um, financial situation. Like I'm not versed to give tax advice, but uh, no. Um, just before we get away from the investment end here, we talked about the intangible drilling costs, which we ran through. The tangible, it's the same concept. Um, it's just on the remaining 20% of the overall budget of the well um, through bonus depreciation because of the fact that that's being walked back this year uh, to 80%. That full value cannot be written off in year one, but it will be recoverable in the out years of the amortization. And then the third portion we talked about the tax benefits, and maybe I don't think I mentioned it, it's depletion allowance. So right. essentially what occurs on depletion allowance of the distributions that you receive as an investor, there's a 15% safe harbor where you're only paying federal income taxes on 85% of your distribution. Thereafter. Correct. Right. And and how long does a well usually produce? So I'm going to invest my money. Yeah. I'm going to get a big tax break up front. Mm -hmm. And then assuming that everything goes well and we strike gas, um, that well is going to produce and I'm going to get a dividend check based on its production Yeah. for the length of its production, mm-hmm. right? How long on average does something like that produce? Our Marcellus wells, the economic life are around 65 years and wow. our Utica wells, the economic life is around 40 to 45 years. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's a long time. Right. And I can, I assume transfer that ownership to my estate, my wife, my kids, or something like that if I only am here for another 45 years. Yeah, there's there's clearly devils in the detail there. There's uh, transferability provisions that you have to adhere to based on the limited partnerships so of the investor, but yes, yeah, um, it, can be, it can be with certain limitations transferred within family members. Awesome. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Yeah, I, I love it. Um, tell people how to get in touch. Where to go to learn more from Penn Production? Yeah, the easiest way to learn more about us is uh, from our website. It's ppgoilandgas.com. And then if anybody wants to reach out to me directly, I'll throw my email address out there. Maybe you can flash it up on the screen. I don't know how you do that. Yep, I will. It is jhall at pennproduction.com. All right, right, Josh. Thanks for coming in. All right, buddy. Appreciate it.